Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. We look into why so many electronics are built with so-called death dates when the batteries will stop working, why it's bad for consumers and the environment, and why we aren't doing more about it. We speak with Indigenous freelance journalist Brandy Morin about her new memoir, Our Voice of Fire, about her journey as an Indigenous woman and as a reporter sharing stories that often hit close to home. Michelle Douglas reflects on the legacy of Canadian civil rights lawyer Clayton Ruby, who's passed away at the age of 80. Hers was one of many landmark cases he took on, one that ended a policy of discrimination against LGBT military members. But first, we speak with a Victoria woman who took the unusual step of placing an ad in the local paper to try to find a doctor to fill prescriptions for her husband after their doctor retired six months ago, and how her printed plea once again exposed a medical system that simply isn't delivering for many in Canada. A far more serious issue. We've been talking a lot about family doctor shortages across Canada on this show. Nearly one million British Columbians are currently without a family position. Approximately 4.6 million Canadians do not have a regular access to a primary care provider, according to stats. But this next story will give you a much clearer idea of just what the impact of those shortages can be on individuals. A woman in the Victoria area took an ad out in a local paper over the weekend with a simple title, Wanted BC Licensed Medical Professional for Subscription Renewal. Urgent, please. It goes on to explain the circumstances surrounding the plea, a familiar one now. A couple's family doctor had retired back over Christmas. They simply had no luck trying to find someone to fill that void and to fill her 82-year-old husband's prescriptions. Janet Mort says she was reluctant to go public but had nowhere else to turn. Husband Michael is dealing with a variety of medical conditions, including recovering from recent brain surgery. Now, BC Premier John Horgan who recently chaired a gathering of provincial and territorial leaders asking for more healthcare funding from Ottawa, was asked about the ad today and the reasons behind it. His answer, a bit flippant. He says he's considering using the same approach as the couple to pressure the federal government to increase healthcare funding to provinces. Uh, maybe I'll take out an ad in the paper. I don't know. Um, I suspect we're going to do that anyway. But uh, I've been pretty candid uh, with uh, the federal government about this, as have my colleagues. Again, uh, this isn't a, a question of partisanship. It's not a question of a region. It's the whole country. It's not clear that more funding would actually solve this, is actually the only problem here, but still. So what happened in the couple's search for a doctor? And what does the woman, who happens to be an Order of BC recipient, who placed the ad, make of the Premier's comments today? Janet Mort joins me now from the Victoria area. Janet, thank you so much for your time tonight. Hi, I'm I'm happy to be with you. It's Ben, right? It is, yes. I know you've been happy doing a lot of interviews. Happy to be with you, and I'm a great <laughs> fan of dill pickles in any form, so I'm going to hang on and listen to this story after. Well, I, I, I was, wasn't going to ask you that, but I'm glad you brought it up, because I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm curious to know what that dill pickle pizza will taste like. I've never actually tasted it myself. so I'll try I, one I if you send me one. <laughs> Absolutely. We'll try and figure out how to get you one a little later in the show. You know, this is such a familiar story. We've been doing stories about family doctor shortages, you know, primary care physician shortages for a while now. Uh, but, you know, how long had you been seeing your previous family doctor? Because it's such a, family, a familiar story. Suddenly they retire and you've got nowhere to go. Uh, Michael, um, uh, the only comment I make about your introduction is the brain surgery was not so recent. Michael had brain okay. surgery about 12 years ago. Okay. Um, but it has left him with numerous uh, deficits in his health. Uh, he's uh, clinically deaf uh, from the surgery. Um, a number of other conditions have developed, falling, losing balance. Uh, so I have Michael sitting here with me, by the way, Um uh, I have been Michael's caregiver since that brain surgery. He had to uh, quit work. Uh, he was a, a special school counselor at the time. Um, and so I take very seriously my responsibility for looking after Michael's health and making sure he's well cared for. And I did find a marvelous Dr. Cox uh, who specialized in uh, geriatric and challenging medical conditions and Michael was with him for uh, I, th I would I'm taking a guess now but I would say eight to ten years and he was excellent
excellent. He could see problems coming before they happened. He knew the right specialist to send Michael to for connected issues, and, and we were bl- we were blessed. And we told him every time we saw him that we were blessed. Uh, he gave us six months' notice. I mean, really, he was 75. It was just quite okay, in our view, for him to retire. He tried to sell his business, but uh, no one's buying doctors' businesses these days. Uh, and so we were left at Christmas um, with refills for prescriptions. And Dr. Cox assumed, as did we, that we would find a doctor. He tried to help us find a doctor and assign Michael. So that's the the long and short of it. Uh, Since Christmas, he recommended that I try, in the meantime, before I found a doctor, that I try to tell us my health, that he thought it looked like a good option if we we were stuck. So uh, we did. Um, And for several visits when we needed something for Michael. I I have my own doctor, by the way, who specializes in women's issues. Um, So she couldn't take Michael. Um, We were quite satisfied with what we got with TELUS Health, um, but Michael's health started to deteriorate and new symptoms started to develop. Um, I am, we've been married 51 years. we have a wonderful partnership and a beautiful home, and we're happy. Um, but I have become very frightened in the last four or five months that we could be dealing with prostate cancer, and I needed somebody to take that on and help us find out if, it, if there definitely is a prostate issue, which is common in elderly men. But if there's cancer involved, it needs to be dealt with quickly. Um, so I needed a doctor for that. And then I got a, a double blow last Wednesday. Uh, first of all, our pharmacy called to say that Dr. Cox's prescriptions had run out. Uh, nine medications were involved related to anti-seizure drugs that's connected with the, the previous brain surgery. Um, drugs that help him from keeping from falling. He had to have a pacemaker put in two years ago. Because he was falling, he broke his hip when he fell. Uh, So we live with a lot of caution and a lot of happiness. Um, But no doctor. But no doctor. No doctor and no prescriptions. So I thought, okay, I'll call TELUS Health. uh, uh, And we need, obviously, to see a urologist. Um, I called TELUS Health again, and much to my astonishment, they said that they, too, were having problems finding physicians and they had no appointments available in the foreseeable future, which extended right through to October. So uh, that that was a double blow. Uh, I it don't cry all that frequently, but that took me to tears that night. Yeah. I was awake most of the night, and by the morning, I had come to the conclusion that the only thing I could do was go public. Uh, we've both been in public service our whole careers at uh, at me at a senior level, uh, actually worked in government for four years as a, as a superintendent of education. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't go public. We don't do that. And no. we're also a very private pair, and our family's private. It was a very difficult thing to do. But I asked Michael, because it's Michael's life that was on the line, if he was okay with, uh, with the publicity that would come with it like calls like this, uh, and okay with with revealing his medical condition, which only close friends know about. And he said, and and hesitant, if that's what we have to do, that's what we have to do. So uh, the Times colonists helped us with the cost of the ad. Uh, They thought it was an important issue, and they doubled the size um, uh, at their own expense. and uh, now here we are. And so I want you to guide me with the questions. There's, there's so of many course. stories here. I've yeah, I know. There's many, many, many stories. Uh, I'm speaking with Janet Moore. She placed an ad in the Times Colonist, which is a local Victoria paper over the weekend, simply asking for a doctor to fill up prescriptions. She's explained why that is. When we come back, we'll talk a bit more about uh, what the reaction was to the ad um, and and just you know what the problem is and, and what 
having a couple like Janet and Michael having to go public in their search for a doctor means broadly. Uh, we'll be back with that. Our guest is Janet Mord, who retired in 2007 after a 35-year career as a teacher, principal, and superintendent of schools here on Vancouver Island. We're speaking about an ad that she placed in the local Victoria Times columnist over the weekend, simply asking for someone to help her and her husband out. They needed a doctor to fill prescriptions and simply had nowhere else to turn. It's a story that we know a lot about of anecdotally, but we don't hear personal stories like this one very often. It was a difficult decision uh, for Janet and Michael to be, go public as well with their search for a doctor. Were you surprised by the reaction to the ad, Janet? I mean, it's been, it, it, people are talking about this. I, I'm very surprised. I think I've counted this as my ninth, 29th uh, media conversation, um, some here in our home and, and some on air, some from across the country. This isn't a situation that belongs only to BC, as I'm sure you're well aware um, this system is broken. Um, we've had, now it's over 200 emails and they're coming in. Uh, I, I've averaged about 10 today, about 10 every 30 minutes come in. Um, I'm, I'm heartbroken by what I'm hearing. I had no idea, and I really wonder how many people do have an idea of how bad it is out there. Um, We've had um, probably 20 doctors in the emails, some of, all of them wishing they could help us, some offering to do Zoom meetings, some offering to be temporary doctors from if we could get to the Lower Mainland, uh, all, everyone expressing compassion. The saddest ones are people who don't have the voice that I have. Uh, I've been in the system a long time. I was a superintendent in the local school district as well as in government. I'm well known in this region. Uh, people have reached out with their very deeply personal stories um, and asked for help, asking me for help, asking me if I get more doctors than I need, could I share with them who contacts me? Can I, can I help them? I have not been able to find anybody who has found a new doctor in the last couple of years. Uh, no, I know. There's yeah. nothing. No. Um, people who are sending me tips, lovely people. I got a tip today from a woman in Nanaimo who told me how she goes at 7.30 in the morning to the medical clinic to, to hoping to be the first in the lineup But if at the 9 o'clock opening. But if the lineup is too long, she moves to the afternoon lineup and starts the afternoon lineup so that she can get in in the afternoon for a prescription. Like the, yeah. It's, These the are stories tips are on how to survive. That's what they are. They're, they're tips on how to survive. It's so wrong. An 85-year-old woman who contacted me and said, my husband just died and he managed everything in our home and I don't have a doctor and I don't know what to do. Can you tell me what to do? Mm. The personal stories are heartbreaking. What did um, you make? You know, the Premier was asked about this today. You know, this is this is his job at the end of the day. Um, he was asked about it. I, it felt like it was a bit flippant, but, you know, that's not necessarily out of character. Um, what did you make of what he had to say? I was surprised and initially really hurt. His office called me later today and uh, explained that there may be an ad campaign in the fall that might be coming up, and he was kind of speaking ahead of time. Um, I've been on a microphone myself many times and we make mistakes and I think that that was a mistake. Um, this is, uh, I've seen people saying on the internet since, this is not a joke, this is not funny. And uh, so... Um, but there doesn't I, seem to I, be, I mean, there's no easy solutions here. You've, you've perfectly described with the emails that you've gotten, your own situation, given your background, you know, just how difficult this whole system has become to navigate for everybody now. I, I really want, and I'm going to say it quickly so we can fit it in. Uh, I think this, um, I was part of the Sullivan Royal Commission in 1989. In fact, that's when government hired me to help implement the 89 recommendations they made about education. Education was a disaster and in the dark ages, and that's why they established a royal commission, which means for our listeners that it is arm's length from government. Uh, for two years, um, a group of about 14 
a team of about 14, traveled every community in the province to ask, what's wrong with education in your area? What's your opinion? Uh, It resulted in, after two years of investigation, 89 recommendations to government. And I was responsible for implementing the recommendations for the K-3 program with all of the ministry staff and a team that came in from the province. We need a health royal commission. That is the, as far as I'm concerned, it's the only route to go. It's arm's length from government. It takes the blame out of it. It takes it out of politics. It puts real people on on the ground in the province talking uh, to each other and to people who are highly trusted uh, in uh, at the provincial level, non-governmental people. This isn't about blame. This is about fixing the system. And you, I think we have to start over. We. And that's what we did with the, in four, it took us four years and all the K to three classrooms in the province were using research based practices that had been also studied in other countries. This is what we need. We've got to start over. And, you know, two weeks ago, I was thinking they won't fix the system before I die. And my family's in trouble. I've got two great, three great grandchildren. Um, two of them don't have a doctor. My granddaughter, who's a single mom and with an autistic child, doesn't have a doctor who's moving out of town right now. My son, who's 59, and his wife haven't had a doctor for five years. And we're, we're a strong family. And we're, we're medically falling apart. So uh, that's my... And yeah. I've asked for a meeting with um, uh, Premier Horgan because I want to tell him about this royal commission that I lived with. He didn't. He wasn't and in politics at the time. It worked. No. It worked. Jenna Mord, we'll have to leave it at that, and for I which know. you received an order of BC, of course, as I was mentioning off the top. Janet, thank you so much for sharing your story. I know how difficult it's been to tell this story over and over again, but it's important that people know it, and I really appreciate you, and best of luck to you and Michael as well. I hope you have that doctor and you get the care you need. We have an appointment for next Thursday with a new thank family God. doctor. Okay. Super. Thank you, Janet. <laughs> Well, waste not, want not, the old saying goes. Chances are, and you'll relate to this, we can all relate to this. Chances are you own several devices that need to be charged all the time. And chances are they'll eventually stop being able to hold that charge. And what do you do then? Well, these days, mainly, we just replace them, right? Well, it's no coincidence. The fact is that part of the marketing of these devices is something called planned obsolescence or a death date. They know when the the battery's only going to last so long. The only person who doesn't know usually is you or me, the consumer. Um, But that's not only bad for the pocketbook, our pocketbooks. It's also tough on the environment. And why are we angrier about it? Well, joining me now is Kyle Weens. He's the CEO of Repair Community iFixit, and he's speaking to us tonight from Central Oregon. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, this is certainly a topic that everybody will have an opinion on, you know, the the sort of forced obsolescence of many of your devices because of the batteries generally. How old is this phenomenon? Because, of course, I'm old enough to remember when you'd put, you know, double A's in your Walkman kind of thing, you know? Yeah, well, the double A's in your Walkman worked fine. Uh, And I, you know, I think the most mainstream device that we really saw this start to happen with was the iPod. The iPod was the first music player that had an integrated battery that you couldn't swap out the double A's. Uh, and we all just kind of rolled with it. <laughs> there wasn't a whole lot of protest at the time. Uh, and and since then, we've seen batteries move into all of the things in our lives. So what is the impact of that? I mean, I mean, we know that, that in, it must be, I mean, we know that in terms of the devices themselves, the batteries are more effective, in some senses are better protected, right? Um, but what is the unintended or the intended impact of this on the consumer? Well, the the impact is we have a consumable uh, baked into all of our products that's not replaceable. So these batteries last between 400 and 1,000 uses or cycles. And so think about if if your car, if you could use your car 400 times and then you toss it away and get a new car. Like no one would put up with that. If if your tires were welded to the car and you had to replace the car when the tires were out, yeah, we would go mutiny. But for some reason, we've put up with it with electronics. And, and the cost to society is just staggered. 
Yeah, tell me about the cost, because I imagine there's both the cost of the consumer and then there's the cost of, of disposing of these things, right? And making Yeah, I mean, there's certainly an environmental impact to manufacturing these things. You know, 70% of the uh, carbon impact of electronics is in the manufacturing of them. It's not plugging them into the wall. They don't take that much power, but making them requires a huge amount of power. So there's a big environmental impact. But I think the thing that strikes home uh, to most people is just the cost. If you think about all the things in your life that have a battery, uh, you know, let, let's say you've got you've got four gadgets and each of them, maybe the battery is going to last four years. Well, that means every year you're replacing one of those things, right? So you're on this constant treadmill of having to replace all of the things in our life. Uh, and we're just we're just forking money hand over fist to, to the electronics manufacturers. And with inflation where it is, I imagine that with people looking to cut costs here and there, one of the things they're going to want to cut costs on is replacing gadgets that are perfectly usable, except for the fact that the battery doesn't work anymore. Absolutely. And and the cost difference is staggering. So you look at a $1,000 smartphone, a battery for that could be $35 for a new battery. These batteries are not expensive. Uh, but but. Uh, you know, overwhelmingly, you ask people, well, you know, I'm thinking about getting a new phone. It does, the battery doesn't last as long as it used to. It doesn't run as fast as it used to. The, it not being as fast as it used to could be because the battery is wearing down. It, these do that. Uh, and and it is you know, completely baffling to me that that no you know you go to buy a smartphone, it never says on the box, hey, the battery only lasts three four years. They don't they don't tell you. Why have companies? I mean, clearly. Consumer folks and tech folks have probably been trying to pry away at this and figure out, okay, well, okay, tech companies, tell us, uh, you know, if you're making these things, tell us about the battery, tell us what the, tell us how long this is going to last, but that information isn't out there. Well, and that's what's astounding about this Washington Post article. Uh, the author, uh, Jeff Fowler, went and reached out to all these different companies and said, hey, Bose, hey, Sony, hey, you know, Philips, Sonicare, just tell me how long your stuff lasts. I'm not, I, I, yeah, I just want to know, you know, if I buy this, if I recommend this product, is it going to last a year? Is it going to last five years? How long are they going to last? These companies couldn't tell the Washington Post how long their products would last. What is is there a point? I mean, for for listeners out there who have devices, is there a point where all of a sudden it's almost like a like a fast like a like a ski hill where you, that your product will start going downhill very quickly based on its battery power? Yes, it depends on the product. Um, you know, with, with uh, something like um, you know m- most headphones or or most gizmos, I think you can figure probably five hundred charge cycles. That's a complete charge discharge of the battery. Uh, is is when really battery life starts to to go off a cliff, uh, and and so if you think about like your kids would say a Nintendo Switch, if they're using that Switch every day and they're charging it up, you know, completely every day, as short as a year and a half, um, or or if you're like me, you only use it occasionally, maybe it's three or four years. I know that some companies, I mean, Apple at one point was caught with, you know, the fact that it was built into their products, that the that the battery would degrade, uh, and then they replaced them or offered to replace them. Are companies at least offering to do some of this work for you, or is it just too, too time-consuming for most consumers to bother? Yeah, yeah, well, so this is what iFixit does. We've stepped into the gap, and we sell battery kits, uh, because almost no manufacturers do. Uh, until recently, you know, no smartphone manufacturer was selling batteries. I don't know of a single electric toothbrush company that will sell you a replacement battery. Uh, and and I think that's that's borderline criminal, this idea that we're going to sell you an elect, you know, electric toothbrush with fancy motors and everything else, and we're going to build a consumable into it. We're not going to tell you that consumable will wear out, and we won't sell you a replacement consumable. Uh, you, you just need to throw it away and buy a new one. Uh, and, and so it, it, it's, it's like this most, to me, kind of unbelievable uh, trap that we've all walked into. And yet we seem to have walked into it quite willingly as consumers, have we not? Well, you know, there's something about the electronics industry where it's where yeah, it's sexy and compelling. There's new gadgets regularly. Uh, you know, the iPod was the product that started this, and uh, the sales pitch was always, "Well, hey, there's a new one. It's got more capacity. It comes in different colors. Maybe this one has a camera." So they're always adding more features, and so you get this is kind of psychological obsolescence where we feel like the one that we have isn't as good as it used to be. Uh, I think I think it was Jimmy Kimmel went out on the streets of, of L.A. and they asked people, they said, hey, do you want to see the new iPhone? Tell us what you think of it. And they hand them an iPhone. They're like, oh, yeah, this is so much better. It's so much faster and sleeker. Uh, and it turned out they'd given everybody the previous one. Of course. Uh, 
<laughs> so, so there is a there's a there's a level of like we've been trained to expect the new one and to almost feel bad about the one that we have because it's older. Uh, and I think that's something that that we all need to wake up to and change our behavior a little bit. Realize that we've had the wool pulled over our eyes. Well, it's and it certainly helps if the if the product that you own no longer works as well as when you got it, right? Uh, because if you have a turntable, you know it works as well as the day you bought it, generally, right? So, right. but but your you know other other uh, electronic devices that are have those hidden batteries uh, don't. I'm speaking with Kyle Weens, he's the CEO of Repair Community iFixit. We're talking about. Uh, Something that's called forced obsolescence, but really we're talking about why is it that consumers aren't angrier or aren't more up in arms about the fact that batteries in their devices tend to wear out and make the devices useless and have, have to be replaced? Why aren't we more upset about it? Coming up, we'll talk a bit more about uh, what can be done. I mean, there are clearly different jurisdictions around the world that are looking at this in terms of consumer rights, and we'll talk about that after this. My guest is Kyle Weens. He's the CEO of Repair Community iFixit. He's speaking to us tonight from Central Oregon. Um, we're talking about uh, forced obsolescence of your electronic devices. Uh, you know, a lot of them have hidden batteries. It's not like the old days where you used to know if your if your Walkman was running out, you just go and buy four new double A's or two new double A's, put them in, and off it went until it invariably broke because you dropped it or something along those lines. But these days, it's the battery that is often the problem. The batteries degrade, and then the product itself just doesn't work as well as it used to. And we tend to be happy enough to just to go buy a new one. And, and that, of course, has all kinds of unintended consequences, let alone the cost to us, the consumer. So, Kyle, what can be done? I mean, clearly you've offered uh, something of a remedy, but there's other rules out there. People are looking at trying to at least um, find some way around this so that consumers have more information when they buy these products. Well, the first thing is to know you can replace these batteries. Uh, you know, if you look at a lot of the products, they don't have screws um, so it takes a little bit of, of prying know-how. We have thousands of free guides on iFixit that will show you how to take things apart. So I'd say the first thing is just you know, take control of the products in your life. Believe in yourself. Find a way either to replace the battery yourself or find a, a local professional who can. Um, but but then to, to go above and beyond that, I think there's some things that society needs to do to make to make this easier and normalize this behavior. So what are what can be done? Uh, I guess from from the point of view of the consumer, what should you be on the lookout for when it comes to your devices? How can you better protect yourself against this obsolescence? Yeah, so the very first thing to do when you're thinking about buying anything, I don't care if it's a electric toothbrush or a vacuum or a smartphone, look to see if replacement parts are available. Um, just this week, Samsung's finally started selling replacement parts for their smartphones. That's really exciting. Apple has started doing it this year, and so has Google. But other companies like like Sony does not, for example. Um, so look to see if, if parts are available. If they're not, uh, buy something else. Buy a different brand. So uh, oftentimes I'll be at the store and I'll, you know, if I want to buy a vacuum or a toaster or whatever it is, and I'll just do a real quick Google for, you know, thing parts. And I'll see, are there parts available? If there aren't, pick a different brand. Legislate. I know the European Union has looked at has has rules in place as well. I mean, there are things that that government can do to to. I mean, we're we're kind of relying on the technology companies to do this out of their own goodwill at this point, are we not? Yeah, absolutely. We, we need to set some norms of behavior. This has gone on for too long with too much bad behavior, kind of uniform across the industry. Uh, and so it's time for governments to step up. The Federal Trade Commission has started investigating bad behavior where manufacturers have been limiting access to repair. Uh, the uh, There is over 25 U.S. states uh, that have considered right to repair legislation. So far this year, uh, Colorado passed a uh, wheelchair-focused right to repair bill for electric wheelchairs, and the state of New York passed a broad electronics right to repair bill. Uh, and, and we expect many more states to follow. The European Commission is looking at this as well. France has even gone so far as to label products on the shelf with how easy they are to fix. There's actually a number on the product next next to the price where it says, hey, this smartphone is easy to fix or hard to fix. That's really important knowledge for people. Because I guess the, the point here is that if you're someone who's a real gadget head and you like to change your products all the time, well, so be it, right? Go ahead. But for the rest of us who may treat something like an old toaster, remember, you, there used to be places that repaired things, right? You don't see a lot of those out there anymore, other than places like yours, um, that at least it gives consumers some options, right? Yeah, and I'd like to see more of those repair shops come back. We need to think about repair and maintenance jobs as green jobs, uh, every product that we can repair and, and extend the life is, is another thing that we don't have to manufacture in the first place. It, 
It, it saves resources. It saves carbon in the atmosphere. It's net good. Uh, and it, it creates local jobs. Uh, so every chance that you get to support your local repair shop, uh, you know, to take it. Uh, that's It's really the, the all of us um, acting in concert that, that shape the contours of the society that we want to live in. And so if you want a local appliance repair person, then then hire them when you have something that breaks. There's also a change of mindset too. I mean, we've had sort of the the, the coming and I guess maybe going now a fast fashion, and we sort of moved into an even more disposable culture than we were in before. Um, and I guess that's also a change of mindset that has to come into place. Yeah, we, we need to be content with the things that we have and realize, you know, sometimes less is more. Uh, but but I, I also would argue that it, this, there's an opportunity to save the planet through sheer laziness. Let's just hang on to the stuff that we've got. Uh, you know, getting a new thing, like swapping out a refrigerator is a total pain in the neck. The last time my refrigerator broke, it was like vastly easier to fix it than it would have been to get rid of it and get a new refrigerator. Indeed. Um, in, in terms of just, you know, the recycling always comes up in these conversations as well. But I gather when it comes to the recycling of electronics, it's not all that effective. That's true. We are pretty bad at turning products back into their raw material components. So if you think about a smartphone, maybe we can get some copper, we can get some gold out of it, but there's a lot of materials that are lost. For example, neodymium is a rare earth metal that's used in the magnets, uh, both the microphone and the speaker. No one is recovering neodymium at scale and recycling. That's just lost in the recycling process. And almost all of the world's rare supplies come from these very polluted mines in northern China. So there's a geopolitical element to this where we are beholden to China for these, this material extraction if we want to be able to make new products. Uh, we would be far better off if, if we would uh, emit, you know, reduce our, our overall consumption by, by keeping the things we have lasting a little bit longer. So any parting advice, Kyle, to listeners who are sitting there staring at their, you know, their, their electric toothbrush that doesn't brush as well as it once did or their, <laughs> or their, or their phone that just doesn't seem to hold its charge the way it once could? Yeah, I mean, tally up all the things in your life that have batteries. It's it's sort of probably more than you would ever realize until you sit down and start counting. And then realize there is hope. You can fix it. Look online for replacement battery and tools. Sometimes there may be, you know, some prying, some tabs, latches, maybe a little bit of glue that you have to work through with a hairdryer. Uh, but it is totally solvable. We have millions of people a month repairing things uh, using ifixit.com and and succeeding with they, they but the, the key and I would say the biggest barrier is believing in yourself believing that you can fix a thing uh, you're not going to hire a toothbrush repair person uh, so you're going to have to do that one yourself uh, and it can be done Kyle Weens, thank you so much for your time thanks for having me there are many reasons people are drawn to journalism it's often not the most glamorous profession, although it's sometimes it might look like it is. It really isn't. Uh, but perhaps the most obvious and the most profound is the need to share people's stories, the need to connect with people and share their stories. And when you're given that great privilege of telling their stories, empathizing with them in a way that allows you to really get to the root of what it is they're trying to say, telling a story that the person whose story you're sharing is proud of when they see it. That's the ultimate reason some people are drawn to this profession. And it strikes me as what drew my next guest to this profession, a journalist with years of experience beginning in Stony Plain, Alberta, where she's from. Brandy Morin has worked for organizations such as the CBC, APTN, the New York Times, National Geographic, Al Jazeera, and many more. But through her reporting on Indigenous issues, there's also a personal story, one that sometimes mirrors the stories that she's reporting about. It includes time in foster care, witnessing generational trauma, sexual abuse, mental health crises, and more. An award-winning French Cree Iroquois journalist from Treaty 6 in Alberta and author of her new memoir, Our Voice of Fire, Brandy Morin, joins me now. Thank you so much for your time tonight and congratulations. <laughs> Tom, say thank you so much uh, for having me. It's good to talk to you. Yeah, you know, I've always been struck by, by the stories that stay with you. And I, I feel like by opening your book, your memoirs, talking about Tina Fontaine, that must have been one of those stories that really, really stuck with you over the years. Why was that? You know, I remember in 2014, it was August, when um, her body was being pulled from Winnipeg's Red River. And it took her innocent looking face even though she was 15 years old she was she was a child she looked like a child 
um, you know, she her life was just taken senselessly. And it took her face splattered across headlines in this country to finally shake this country up enough to take action and to, um, you know, go forward with the National Inquiry uh, into missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I very much um, saw a lot of myself in Tina. I... Um, you know, grew up in and out of the foster care system. I ran away. I was in very dangerous situations. I ran away from a group home in Edmonton and was held against my will and and raped by two older men uh, for about a week. And I escaped with my life. I knew um, I could have been Tina and she could have been me. So it's not, you know, it, you know, Tina resonated with me, but each and every um, one of our sisters and their families, our survivors, also resonates uh, with me. And um, I just realized how privileged I am to be here. I mean, sometimes just the, the form of reporting you do is is so intimate. The mm. weight of that must be difficult too, because sharing people's stories with the, in the profound way that you do, um, especially the, the grief and, 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 and the trauma that you witness and that you share, that's a very, those, you, you, you wear though, you, you take those stories inside you. You don't just skim across yeah. the surface. You take them in and, and tell them, and it must be, it must be tough. Um, <clears throat> you know, yes. And, um, it is, but I, I just think that, um, you know, going through a lot of the things that I have come through, you know, has equipped me to be able to do this. It's it's not an, an easy thing. I mean, 90% of the stories that I cover, because I exclusively tell Indigenous stories, involve um, murder, grief, human rights, uh, violations, um, you know, injustice. And it's a constant... Um, maneuvering, you know, uh, through these stories. And, and because I'm Indigenous, I am affected. And, um, you know, there's times when I would go on the road on heavy assignments, you know, for a week or so and um, be experiencing nightmares in my hotel and panic attacks and um, just really struggling to get through um, and having to take, you know, sleeping pills and, and things like that. But, um, you know, then going and, and writing that story or, you know, putting that story together, whether it's broadcast or podcast, once I released that story out, then I felt a release um, because I carry those stories with me all the time. But when I release them out into the world, I, I just feel like I've, done the best that I do, you know, to try to bring awareness, to try to um, bring, you know, uh, justice, uh, you know, to these people that are experiencing it. So I, you know, I, I've been working through um, a lot of um, these um, effects that I feel, um, but I'm not, I'm no stranger to it and, you know, to, to feeling um, and to being, you know, in, in a state of, you know, stress, but I've come a long way and um, I'm, I'm learning as I go to process better through it. And I um, just, you know, I, that having those lived experiences, it, it allows me to connect to people, to empathize, to um, connect on, on a deeper level and to be able to deeply feel that. And I, and I know that that's per- portrayed in, in, in my work. Yeah, one thing you mentioned that I thought was really poignant was you said the truth can be very ugly, mm. but necessary. Absolutely. You know, this, you know, truth and reckoning process that we are in, you know, across Canada, and this is a wave that's moving across North America and even across the world. Um, it's ugly and it's um, painful. It doesn't. You know, it's uncomfortable. It doesn't happen overnight. It's something that you have to face. It's something that you have to feel. 
and something that we have to move through together. And my book and my memoir and my story, a lot of it is ugly. A lot of it is painful and uncomfortable. But there is hope and inspiration in that. And, um, you know, my, hopefully, um, it, you know, it can reach people in the way that my stories do to connect, you know, us human to human, which I believe is a really powerful way to break down the different barriers that we have, um, you know, with whether that's through race or culture or, you know, um, you know, um, economics or standing. So, yeah. It must have been, how was it to write your own story? When did you know that it was time to sit down and, and mm. put all those thoughts down into, into one place? Because that's, that's a challenging thing to do, as, as I'm sure yeah. any listener will know. Yeah, so um, I have a mentor, a longtime mentor. She was my former news director when I was working for APTN National News um, several years ago. And um, we've stayed close, and she, you know, would tell me, you know, from time to time, you need to write a book. You need to write a book. And I, she knew I was a survivor and, and that I had overcome a lot of adversity and, and really fought my way um, to, what, to what I'm doing. But I, you know, I didn't really take her seriously. And then I think it was about two or three summers ago now, I wrote a piece for The Guardian about um, my own story as a survivor. I was just frustrated with the things that were going on, the, you know, the apathy um, in the, you know, in this country and, and across North America with this crisis. So I, the response to that, you know, even that article was incredible. And so about a year and a half, two years ago, I just thought, okay, well, maybe it's time. Because, you know, I have a platform as a journalist. I have power as a journalist. And people share their stories that are intimate and raw all the time. And they're brave enough and courageous enough to share that with the world. And so I feel that responsibility. And so I just started, um, you know, I started writing and the doors just kept opening for it from my agents to my publishers at House of Nancy. Um, and it's just been just an incredible um, experience. Our guest this half hour is Brandy Morin. She's a award-winning French Cree Iroquois journalist from Treaty Six in Alberta. She's author of a new memoir called Our Voice of Fire. She's also been covering covered the Pope's visit. This was all happening. This whole prelude to the book release was happening, and you were busy. I know because I was <laughs> following what you were doing. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk briefly just about a bit more about the book and 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 what you hope to hope readers get from it. And we maybe we'll have time to talk a bit more about your impressions of the Pope's visit as well. That's coming up. Freelance journalist Brandy Morin is with us this half hour, author of a new memoir called Our Voice of Fire, just out. Uh, congratulations. I gather it's doing very well as well. I mean, it's, that's always encouraging, isn't it? It's, an, it's amazing. Like, um, it's, it, it was only officially released yesterday, although it came out in bookstores over the past week and it's selling out in places. The Toronto Star just released a list of the top selling book, books in the country today. And it's number 10 in the country. Like, I'm blown away. <laughs> wow. Wow. I saw you. I saw a video of you and your daughters going into uh, Indigo in, in Stony Creek to, to look for a copy. It happened to be beside Bill Browder's book, Freezing Order, which is because we've had Bill Browder on the show. And he was talking about how well his book sales were going. It was, there were fewer viewers than his left. Wow. wow. Yes, there was. It was incredible. I was actually in Spruce Grove. I'm from Stony Plain. And it was uh, the, the bookstore. Yeah, it was the bookstore nearest me. That was like pretty cool. And I, I did a couple of uh, books, another uh, couple of book signings in Edmonton today. And the one um, bookstore glass um, bookshop, they were completely like all the books were spoken for. And I'm, I'm, it's just unreal. But I'm grateful. So grateful because the message is important. I gather when you were telling other people's stories, you, you would have an idea of what you were hoping the impact would be. But now that you've told your own, what would you? What are you hoping readers get from it? What are you hoping we all get from it? You know, ultimately, I hope that um, you know it connects our hearts, like I was saying, because um, you know, 
when when we get authentic with each other and storytelling, um, it, it connects us and it breaks down so many different barriers. Um, you know, our our women, our indigenous women and girls have often not been valued or the blame has been put on them for the genocide that's ongoing um, in the violence that our women face. They're seen as a drunk on a bender, a runaway. She deserved it. She shouldn't have been doing that. I was a runaway. And I think that if people have a look into my story, which unfortunately is similar to so many others, you know, who have survived or have not survived, that they um, maybe would, um, you know, shift, help shift the narrative, you know, um, to uh, change these injustices or, you know, be spurred, you know, to take action or, um, you know, just to be able to create that understanding and to give people hope, anybody Anybody who's overcome, you know, very difficult things, um, you know, I, I hope that they would be inspired ultimately. It's, I gather, I mean, I, I, it's, it's a tough, I mean, not a tough read. People are reading it in one sitting, I've been, I've been seeing, but it's a tough read. And I, I, I know this, I was, was going to ask you about the Pope's visit. We probably won't have a, a lot of time, but there seems to be an appetite at least now to mm-hmm. learn, to learn. Yeah. You know what? It's um, been a long time coming. I, you know, started in um, journalism full time over 10 years ago, and I've been doing exclusively Indigenous stories for, you know, almost near that same amount of time. And um, it's it's getting better. Um, our people are, our stories are starting to, you know, come to the forefront a lot more. There is, you know, little by little, um, justice and reconciliation and healing um, and, and just this, this awakening, this revitalization, you know, of our people that have lived through genocide and the intergenerational um, impacts of that are still um, being felt. And so, um, you know, we are in a, in a, in a good place. We are a generation of fire um, and, um it's it's a it's a beautiful thing to be a part of. It's um it's a ugly thing like we've said, but um you know hopefully we can do this together as a country. You know, I, I should have asked you this long ago, but our voice of fire. Where does that come from? <laughs> it comes from a couple of lines in my book, um, but yeah. you know there there are prophecies about this time you know, that we are a generation of fire um, as Indigenous um, peoples. Um, You may have heard it referred to as the eighth fire or the seventh fire generation, where uh, our people would, um, you know, just rise to take our place in the world and that we would, um, you know, be um, healing and um, reclaiming and um, just be able to give back and help in the in this time and place in the world um, to a lot of the different um, issues that are happening. Um, so yeah, that, that, that's that fire generation. <laughs> well, I, it looks like at least the book so far is, is certainly a hot, a hot item. So Brandy Morin, thank you so much uh, for sharing both uh, for sharing more about your, about your memoir tonight and congratulations on putting it all down on paper, releasing it and um, good luck. Taniki, thank you so much for having me. This is Reconciliation in the Media, and I honor you. Thank you. Well, one of Canada's most noted civil rights lawyers has passed away. Clayton Ruby died Tuesday afternoon, surrounded by his family, his law firm said today, calling him a dedicated advocate for human rights, a champion of the underdog, and a loving friend. The federal justice minister, David Lametti, also wrote on social media that his decades of principled advocacy have left an indelible mark on our justice system and on Canadian society. Ruby was involved in several landmark cases over the decades, representing abortion advocate Dr. Henry Morgenthaler, the surviving Dion Quince in their fight against the Ontario government for compensation, Guy Paul Morin, who was exonerated in 1995 after being convicted of the murder of Christine Jessup. 
One of the cases he took on that would perhaps have the greatest impact, despite never actually going to trial, was that of a young Canadian Armed Forces officer named Michelle Douglas. She had been subjected to days of interrogation and in 1989, honorably discharged for being deemed, quote, not advantageously employable due to homosexuality. She fought back and with Ruby's help, her legal challenge brought an end to formal discrimination against LGBT members of the military 30 years ago this year. Here's Clayton Ruby discussing the outcome a few years ago. After years of struggle, um, when we got to the courtroom door, uh, the armed forces and the government of Canada, through John de Chastelin, admitted quite openly at that point that uh, there had been discrimination against gays and lesbians in the armed forces, that it was unconstitutional and wrong, and he gave the order that it was to stop. And it has stopped, to your credit. And I think we're all grateful for that. Uh, there was a court order, but there was a military order, too. The late Clayton Ruby there speaking about this very case a few years ago. Uh, Michelle went on to become a well-known LGBTQ activist and a recipient of the Queen's Diamond Jubilee Medal in 2012. She now leads an organization called uh, The Purge Fund. And Michelle Douglas joins me now from Ottawa. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Good to be with you, Ben. A sad day, I guess, for Canadians in general. Well, it sure is. Uh, I think a lot of us are reflecting on the the man and the loss, um, and uh, certainly a very sad day for me. Um, he was someone for me who uh, really changed my life. So, yeah, I'm just thinking about his family and and some memories. Yeah, to, to, perhaps to remind listeners back to when you were 23, you were you know newly in the military, a, dr- a job that you had you know dreamed of doing. And then found yourself subject to to what could only be described now as almost unthinkable discrimination, but but written in policy. Tell me a bit about how you came to meet Clayton Ruby and what the journey that draw, that brought you there. Well, you're right. I was uh, a young officer in the Canadian Armed Forces. I was so proud to serve Canada, but uh, I also found myself subjected to some very intense interrogations and. Um, really systemic, I think, forms of discrimination against LGBT folks. I happened to be a lesbian and was fired ultimately in the Canadian Armed Forces uh, in 1989 under the dismissal code of being not advantageously employable due to homosexuality. And um, that was pretty devastating. Uh, I wasn't sure what to do, but I knew that was very wrong what had happened to me. And I was, um, I met the first openly gay member of parliament in Canada, a man by the name of Sven Robinson. Um, and he said, I know a lawyer who could help you. And, and I was put in contact with Clayton Ruby. And really that started in 1989 or so, um, you know, a decades long relationship with him. And he represented me in my fight against the military. How important was it then uh, I guess the, the better question is how how alone did you feel at the at once this happened, and how much was the support of people like Sven Robinson and Clayton Ruby? How important was it for you to be able to 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 fight the fight that you fought? Yeah, you're right. I I was really alone. I was pretty shattered. Um, I had uh, you know felt quite um, humiliated and shamed um, simply for being the officer that I was and who I am. Um, and but I knew what was wrong. Uh, and I when I met Clay Ruby, he talked to me about the facts of my case. And, you know, he said, so, Michelle, what will it be? Will you take this on? Is it yes or no? Do you want to proceed? And I remember in that moment, kind of a pivotal life moment. And I said, yes. And he really stood by me. He and I should add um, his his partner in life, Harriet Sachs, also a lawyer and and later a judge. Um, you know, and and Clay was there for me. He was kind and supportive, and I think really saw me as as quite vulnerable, which I was at the time, and was very caring about explaining. You know, the journey I was going to go through. I. Listen, I was so naive at the time. I thought I might even be able to bring a lawsuit uh, anonymously. And he, he gently, you know, told me, okay, so that wouldn't be on. But he he did really um, respect me and, and guide me in the process. Uh, and was the kind of uh, 
advocate I needed. And wow, was he a force for me, I'll tell you. So listeners know, I mean, you were you were fired um, under these policies, but many, many of your fellow service members were, were living a very uh, difficult life in the military if they were gay. Well, you're right. And uh, what I didn't know at the time back in 1989 when I was fired is that I was just part of something that was much, much bigger, something we call today the LGBT purge. This was a matter of policy that uh, members of the Canadian Armed Forces, they used to stay, say that you could still consider serving if you were LGBT, but um, you would never get a promotion, never pay raise. Uh, never a posting, no more training. And that was codified. That was written down in the books in the military. And so I now know that um, along with what I experienced, we think up to 9,000 other folks who served in the military, RCMP and public service, experienced this purge. It was so fundamentally uh, wrong. And I think most folks hearing this today would say, wow, is that ever un-Canadian? Um, we did nothing wrong. We just wanted to serve our country, but we were treated very, very badly. And yet you had, um, I mean, you fought this fight. Obviously, you were the one who had to put your name and, and your reputation out there when you decided to go ahead with this lawsuit. But having allies, having people who can support you obviously was important. And I, I guess, you know, Sven Robertson, you mentioned, but Clayton Ruby as well. And and, and the idea that this was fundamentally wrong, um, he, he built quite the case for you. I mean, I guess you had, you you won hands down, right? Well, that's right. Um, this was an early Charter of Rights and, and Freedoms case. Um, we we brought this lawsuit against the federal um, uh, government and against the military by saying, you know, this is fundamentally against the Charter of Rights. And uh, so it was an early case that, that came forward. And by 1992, on the eve of what was to be a three-week trial, and were we ready? I remember Clayton Ruby being so incredibly well-prepared and really, in many ways, pretty keen to take on the overt discrimination uh, you know, being perpetrated by the military. Um, on the night before the trial was to commence, the, uh, the Canadian Armed Forces settled out of court with us. They ended the policy they uh, restored all of the rank and pay to all those who had been subjected to the policy, and they financially compensated me as well. The moment uh, changed my life, really, and I have Clay Ruby to thank for that, and so many others that were there with me, folks like Sven Robinson, Harriet Sachs, and, and many others. Do you remember that phone call? Well, I do, actually. Um, I was in Toronto uh, preparing for the case, and uh, I was incredibly nervous. And, and um, Clay told me that, you know, we didn't have to go to court, but that we anyway to have the judge formally endorse the, the decision of the settlement. And that happened. So that, that was now 1992, October 1992, which for folks listening, they, they'll realize that was 30 years ago. 30 years ago, the policy of um, LGBT folks being able to serve in the military um, was, uh, was finally open um, and people could serve if they were qualified. And that's the basis that folks should be able to um, serve. Uh, so, yeah, it was a huge moment. And it was Clayton Ruby who, who led the legal fight. And so here I am grateful for him and acknowledging him and remembering him. Um, he changed the lives of so many people, and I'm hearing from many of them today to reflect on on those days. My guest this half hour is Michelle Douglas. Uh, she was uh, really the, the plaintiff uh, in, a, in a lawsuit filed by Clayton Ruby, the late Clayton Ruby. We're talking about his passing today at the age of 80, perhaps one of Canada's most noted human rights lawyers and, and the impact that this case had on what was known as the as, as a purge of, uh, of LGBTQ uh, or LGBT members of the Canadian military and a case that he took up. Uh, Michelle was the 
was the plaintiff and together, uh, Michelle particularly, but together, they helped end what had been uh, a very long and discriminatory, discriminatory policy in the Canadian military and sort of changed the military for many, uh, for LGBT members uh, across the country, for the better, obviously. When we come back, just a bit more about Clayton Ruby's legacy, what's being remembered today, and just what you've done since, because I know you didn't go back to the military, but you've had a uh, an incredible career nonetheless. So we'll, we'll talk about that after this. Michelle Douglas is with us uh, from Ottawa this half hour. We're talking about the life and legacy of Clayton Ruby, uh, a lawyer who she worked with, uh, one of Canada's most noted human rights lawyers who passed away today. Uh, he represented uh, Michelle in what is one of the most land, a landmark case against the Canadian military for decades of a written policy of discrimination against uh, LGBT, LGBT members of the military and, and how uh, they settled out of court right before the trial was meant to begin and just how much of a change and really an earth shifting change that was uh, that precipitated both thanks to Michelle uh, Clayton Ruby and many others. Uh, what have you been hearing today from people uh, who've reached out to you? What are, what are you talking about? What are your memories and what is his legacy in your eyes? Well, you know, he stood up for uh, folks who needed uh, great advocacy. Um, and, you know, I, I remember thinking at the time, how can I possibly as one person stand up against the military? But, you know, I, uh, having him by your side and the person who would advocate for you and 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 talk about the absurdity of these policies, um, I knew it was at least a fair fight. And as it turned out, I, I know that the other side then, you know, the military uh, realized it too. Um, what an incredible advocate. And people today that I'm talking to are just, just being incredibly grateful for uh, someone of his stature that would would come and help us, that would be there for us, that would um, really unleash all of the um, incredible skills that he had to to really highlight the absurdity of of policies that were discriminatory and, and pretty oppressive. And you know, he was so well prepared. I remember those days about how he he prepared for that trial. And so we're just thinking about you know, what it's like to have someone stand up for you and be there and to help you seek justice. Uh, I think gratitude and just sadness that he's that he's gone. I was saying that I remember the first time I went to interview him, knowing his reputation, and even as a young reporter, how intimidating it was, because he was always so, you you just knew you couldn't slip up around around Clayton Ruby, because he would uh, he would correct you pretty quickly if you hadn't done your homework. Um, so much as, I mean, the legacy of that case continues to this day. You continue that work. Um, you've talked about how that day changed your life. What since? It's been 30 years. It feels like a long time ago, and yet... It's still very modern in in, in Canadian history. Uh, you know the the ending of that of that long standing policy of discrimination. Yeah, I think uh, you know Clay uh, was very um, supportive of of uh, my development really as a leader from that case, and he encouraged me. You know, be there for others, Michelle. He'd say, and and you know, stand up. You can do that. And he would give me that kind of encouragement. Um, and I, I have done that. I, I um, really launched um, uh, like 30 years now of activism where I'm trying to um, bring about change and support those uh, uh, also on a journey for justice. I now lead an organization that represents and, and advocates for um, people who experience that LGBT purge. We're working on reconciliation efforts. We're building the LGBTQ2S National Monument, collecting historical records, uh, things I never imagined I'd do when I was a very frightened um, and pretty intimidated person back in the late 80s and early 90s when my case was happening. Um, but I, you know, it started something back then. And that's really belief in myself and and that others would join uh, and I could work with folks to to seek change. And I think um, my my friendship over 30 years with um, Clay Ruby and, and his family, um, you know, has been part of that journey for me. Uh, he often would call about, you know, and tell me about things that were happening and, you know, maybe I could step in as well. And, and so, um, yeah, it's a sad day, but of a reflective day, I guess, for me at the moment. So he, you kept in touch all these years. The case was that important to uh, to both of you, I guess. It was. I know it meant a lot to him. And I've uh, spoken to uh, a former colleague of his uh, in the last hours, 
And uh, we were reflecting on it. I know the case meant a lot to him. He was very proud of it. And um, he, yeah, I think he would have many cases that he could reflect on, but he, he, he did talk about his pride in the case and, and the importance for him. And, um, you know, what can I say except that he, the memory of having someone fight so hard for me means he did change my life. And, um, and I know many, many hundreds of others who were experiencing that kind of discrimination. He led the argument that ended discrimination by policy, and it had lots of consequential effect. And, uh, you know, that's, that's a 30-year legacy right there. And while he's gone now, that will certainly outlive him. And I'm trying to do the work that will outlive me too. And so in many ways, it's drawing inspiration from, from those legal giants of the past um, that have uh, paved the way. Do you ever look back and think if only the military, I mean, the military did recognize your talents, right? Uh, they just didn't, didn't want to make room for, for, the, for the person that you were. Do you ever look back with any regret on the fact that you probably could have been a fine, had a fine career in the military as well? lament that at times, you know, I wanted to serve in that way. But in the end, I know I've still found a way to, to serve my country in a way that I'm really proud of. I, I had a long career in, in the public service, but I've never left the advocacy either and the activism. And I, and I continue to do that now on a full-time basis. Um, and because I, I've seen the, the trauma, the effects of, of policy by, you know, discrimination by policy. And I'm trying to help both the government and, and survivors of that time, um, uh, you know, uh, try to reconcile with, with what happened. And uh, the government's doing a much better job and people are healing from that time. But there's still a journey on both sides that's required and I'm trying to encourage it. So um, uh, that's, that's uh, an honor to do that work and um, working with some incredible people who are finding the courage to, to stand up and to, to challenge existing and ongoing um, areas where, where things aren't, aren't going as well as they could. As you found the courage uh, more than 30 years ago. Now, Michelle Douglas, thank you so much for sharing your story with me tonight. My pleasure.